All right, October the 31st, 1517, almost exactly 500 years ago. Can anyone tell me what significant event happened on that day? Somebody just shouted out. Yeah, thank you. It's actually in your news sheet, if you've seen your news sheet this morning. Yes, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door. And that day then marked the beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. To mark that event, we're going to have a few sessions looking at church history. It's good for us to be informed about our heritage. And there are things we can learn from our forebears as well. Um, so this morning, as Andrew said, we're going to take a brief look at the Puritans. And so we're going to have a bit of a mix of history, a bit of teaching from the Bible, and um, a bit of application for us as well. So when I mention the Puritans, I wonder what image comes to your mind. I would hazard a guess that for many of you, it's going to be of a stern-faced man in a starched white shirt, a long black coat, a black hat. Very strict, lots of rules, very dull. Is that right? In fact, do you know the different definition of a Puritan? It's someone who fears that somewhere, someone is having fun. That's how they've been portrayed, isn't it? Wild-eyed, freaky, religious fanatics, upright, uptight, sober, legalistic, dull and harsh. Not the sort of people we would think we want to be associated with. So can we learn anything from the Puritans? Well, I would argue, yes, we can. And I hope that by the end of this morning, I'll have persuaded you that that is the case. Hopefully, we will dispel something of this caricature that the Puritans have and have some reason to be thankful for the heritage and example left to us by the Puritans. Okay, so first then, a bit of historical context. The Puritans were a major influence between about 1550 and 1700, so they were very much part of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, as we've heard, posted his theses on the door of the church in um, 1517. Henry VIII formed the Church of England in 1534, 20 years later, Queen Mary tried to reverse that change, but um, then she died in 1558 and was succeeded by Queen Elizabeth I. So Puritanism as a movement really started under the persecution under uh, Queen Mary, just 30 years after Martin Luther, and then it got properly established under Queen Elizabeth I and would end about 150 years later, um, just shortly before Wesley and Whitfield arrived on the scene and were so mightily used by God in the 1700s. Okay, so you're probably aware that King Henry VIII, although he um, separated the Church of England from the Church of Rome, he really remained a Catholic. So the Church of England, as it was originally formed, was really a Catholic church, but just under um, King Henry VIII's um, headship rather than that of the Pope. It was Henry's son, um, King Edward, that introduced the Protestant reforms within the Church of England. But he died young and was succeeded by his elder sister, Mary. And as you know, she was a devout Catholic and was determined to restore the Pope as the head of the church at any cost. And her violent and single-minded campaign earned her the title of Bloody Mary. So when Elizabeth came to the throne, she was determined to follow a middle course, to try and have some sort of stability and peace. So she was Protestant, but not radically so. So after countless generations in which there had been very little change in the church, one generation saw everything upended. The split from Rome, followed by a period of great upheaval and uh, violent persecution. And finally, out to the end of it, emerged a, a weak church and a people wary of theological certainties. 
And this then was the context in which the Puritan movement started to grow. So the Puritan pioneers were a people who saw the flock scattered. They saw the shepherds of the flock weak and ineffective. But they didn't lose heart. They were a people who had a passionate desire for spiritual renewal. They wanted to see their communities transformed and spiritually dead people brought to life and into a living faith in Christ. These were people who recognized that God was sovereign, yet they saw that they had a vital role to play. They were a people characterized by their maturity, their strength, their intellectual power, and their spiritual insight, as well as a sheer determination to see change. In short, they were a people to whom we can look for inspiration, encouragement, and teaching. And in the first area that I'm going to bring to you this morning from the Puritans, our two teaching series converge because we're going to look, first of all, at what the Puritans can teach us about the Bible. For the Puritans, the Bible was the most precious possession in the world. And Puritanism as a movement could be described as a Bible movement. And again, it's helpful for us to understand a bit of the historical context here. You see, for much of the history of the church... The Bible was available only in Latin, and that clearly limited the number of people that could read it. So for ordinary people, access to the Bible was very limited. It wasn't just that they could, um, in order to hear the Bible um, in English, they had to hear someone preach it and, and translate it into English. In practice, what happened was the Bible would be read in Latin, and then the priest would just preach to them in English. Um, so their, their entire understanding of the Bible came through what they heard from the priest. And that might or might not have been any good. And the Roman Catholic Church believed that that's how things should be. Because they believed it was the responsibility of the church to interpret scripture in light of the traditions of the church. And this, of course, was one of the things that the reformers took issue with. Sola scripture was their cry. By scripture alone. The interpretation of the Bible, they said, should not be based on the traditions of men. But God should be able to speak to individuals directly through his word as the Holy Spirit was given freedom to witness to people's minds and hearts. So John Owen, um, who was a great Puritan teacher, he wrote this. He said, the Holy Spirit, being the author of the whole of scripture, himself gives testimony to the truth of it by the character of divine authority and veracity impressed on it and evidencing these things in power and effective outworking. And he quoted verses such as Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the reformers saw that God's word had to be liberated so that as people read it, the Holy Spirit would be able to do his work of bringing conviction and change, of encouraging and strengthening. And here we note another great landmark in English church history because at this time people were able to read the Bible in English for the first time. So the Bible was translated into English by John Wycliffe in the 1300s. And over the next couple of centuries, there were a number of other translations. But the church ensured that these were never widely circulated. And in fact, it only became legal to own a Bible in English in 1539. And only became widely available in the late 1500s. And then the King James Version, which many of you are familiar with, was produced in 1611. 
So if you're keeping up with the dates, you'll see that the timing of the Bible becoming available in English um, matches the time of the rise of the Puritan movement. And the Puritans saw that for revival to come, for the nation to be transformed, the lives of individual Christians had to be transformed. And they saw this would happen as the Holy Spirit was given freedom to speak to individuals through God's word. So they saw the Bible as being supremely valuable. John Packer, writing about the Puritan, says this. He says, The deepest conviction of the Puritan was that reverence for God's word means reverence for scripture. And serving God means serving, um, obeying scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and to pour over it, and then to live it out and to give out its teaching. Intense veneration for scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. And that's quite a challenge for us, isn't it? I know for a fact that some of us, for some of us, reading the Bible is hard work and it does get neglected sometimes. But for the Puritans, this neglect was an insult to God. And I don't say this to condemn you or indeed to condemn me. Rather, I want us to be reminded this morning of the precious gift that we've been given. You know, if someone you love or admire gives you, um, sends you a message text or an email or something like that you read it don't you probably more than once and probably very carefully well the creator of the universe has written to us the bible is so readily available to us i've even got a version on my tablet is that good let's not neglect reading it exactly god our father has written to us because there are things he wants us to know things that we couldn't have known otherwise and felix mentioned this last week He wants us to know that he loves us. He wants us to know how we can be reconciled to him, how we can show our love to him. He's told us something about our place in the universe, our purpose, the meaning of our lives, and so on. Paul wrote to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's all scripture is God-breathed. Thomas Watson, sorry, Thomas Watson taught that we should think that in every line you read that God is speaking to you. In truth, he is. What scripture is saying, God is saying. And we should never think we've exhausted what the Bible has to say. Augustine said that just as there are shallows in scripture where a lamb may wade, so there are depths in scripture where an elephant may swim. And the Puritans were in complete agreement. John Owen said that one of the stores of truth laid up in it are inexhaustible. Never think that you have knowledge enough. Study the word more fully. No soul will ever uncover all that is in the word to be discovered. But we shouldn't think the Puritans just valued the word simply so they could have greater understanding or knowledge. They earnestly wanted to see lives changed. To see people corrected and trained in righteousness, thoroughly equipped for every good work. They knew that just studying the Bible for its own sake was a sterile exercise. This is John Owen again. The notion of holy evangelical truth will not live, at least not flourish, where they are divided from a holy conversation. As we learn to practice 
so we learn much by practice. For the mind of man is capable of receiving continual supplies in the increase in light and knowledge if they are used for their proper purpose in obedience to God. But if they are not, the mind will quickly be stuffed with notions so that no streams can descend into it from the fountain of truth. I don't think this is an error to which we're particularly prone, but it does highlight a question which is good for us to ask as we're reading the Bible. And that is, how should I respond to what I'm reading? It may be that our response will be to make a change in the way we live. It may be a a response of thanks and worship. It may be a response of renewed hope for the future. This is what Owen meant by a holy conversation. We should be interacting with God as we read. And that interaction should play out into our lives. And this end result of changed hearts and lives should be at the centre and forefront of our minds as we read the Bible. But of course, in order to to respond well to what we've heard, we have to understand what is said. And for this reason, the Puritans were passionate about understanding. They were highly disciplined in their approach to studying the Bible. But they knew their study would be fruitless if it wasn't guided by the Holy Spirit. Richard Baxter said that before and after you read the scripture, pray earnestly that the spirit who caused it to be written may expound it to you and lead you into the truth. And Owen similarly taught that this may be fixed on as a common principle of Christianity, that constant and fervent prayer for the divine assistance of the Holy Spirit is such an indispensable means for the attaining of knowledge of the mind of God in the scriptures that without it, all other means will be of no use. And that's as true today as it was then. And we have any number of books and other resources to help us understand the Bible. But unless the Holy Spirit is allowed to work in our hearts and minds, then all this will do is to serve to fill up our heads. We need the Holy Spirit. And perhaps we need to listen again to the Puritans' teaching, to pray earnestly, constantly, fervently to the Holy Spirit, to lead us and to guide us into the truth. But as I finish this first section on the Puritans and the Bible, I want to consider one other means that God has given us to help us understand his word. And that is each other. And this, I think, points again to one of the great strengths of the Puritans. And that is the high value they placed on the church as the community of believers. See, I think one of the negative impacts that the Reformation has had, and this was uh, completely unintended, um, is has been the privatization of religion. See, as we've seen before, before the, as we've seen before the Reformation, the Church of Rome saw itself as the essential intermediary between God and the people. But the reformers said, no, through the saving work of Jesus on the cross, we can each have direct access to God our Father. Whereas the Church wanted to regulate access to the Bible, the reformers said, no, we must all be able to read the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through it. And this was all well and good. But it was never intended to mean that as individuals, we should be spiritually self-sufficient. The church is no longer important. What matters is just us and our relationship with God. Now, of course, that is important. We're all going to have to give account to God one day as individuals. We're all so um, chosen, saved as individuals. But God hasn't left us there. He's building us into a body. And it's as a church corporately that we're being made into the bride of Christ. The Puritans understood this. They saw the church was central to all they did. And this included their study of the scriptures. 
Now, they presuppose that each individual would be studying the scriptures on their own. And they've, they've, they taught that as individuals, we should ask the Holy Spirit to teach us through it. But they didn't expect that we would learn everything in isolation from one another. To them, the corporate body, the church, was essential for people to come to a mature understanding of the revelation of God in the Bible. So part of this would have been through the preaching, and that was a central part of their times of worship. But also key was their informal discussions with each other. John Owen said, The mutual instruction of one another in the mind of God out of the scripture is also required. And the neglect of this duty is one cause of the great ignorance and darkness that yet abounds among us. We've been put together in a body for our mutual benefit. As iron sharpens iron, we read in Proverbs, so one person sharpens another. And this is an area which I think we could perhaps do better. We talk freely enough about school, about jobs, about holidays. Let's be quicker to ask each other, what are you reading in the Bible at the moment? And this isn't about trying to put each other on the spot. This is about trying to draw out discussion about God and his word, about encouraging and strengthening each other, about reinforcing the things that we're reading and helping each other in understanding. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what God says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Society tells us that religion is a private matter between us and God. We mustn't listen. The Puritan said no. God says no. When we're talking together over coffee after, after the service and when we meet, it's okay to talk about the weather. It's okay to talk about our holidays. These things are all part of our lives. But let's not neglect to talk about what God is saying through his word. What we're learning, what we're struggling with. Let's build each other up. Let's learn to value the word of God communally as well as individually. Colossians teaches us, let the message of Christ dwell in among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the spirit. So let's seek to emulate the Puritans in this, that we become known as a people who treasure the word of God, people who love it and expect to be shaped by it. So as we read the word, we get to see something of God's heart and his purpose for the world and for us. We see that God created mankind because he wanted a people that would enjoy sharing, loving relationship with himself. We see that he continued to love mankind even after they went their own way and rebelled against him. We see that God so loved the world that he gave his own son that whoever believes on him would be able to be reconciled to him and have eternity with him. We see that when Jesus came, his purpose was to establish a kingdom with him at the head, a kingdom that would be characterized by love, joy, peace, kindness and goodness. And the Puritans, they saw this and they understood it and they wanted it. They wanted to see God's kingdom come, to see their lives, the lives of their communities, the lives of the whole of society changed by the power of God, to see his kingdom established here in this land. In short, they wanted revival. And that's the next thing I want to look at this morning, the Puritans and their desire for revival. Because I know this is something we want too. We want to see God's kingdom come, to see God work in supernatural power. But as we look around the world at the moment, we see a world in turmoil. 
We see political and economic uncertainty. We see people jaded and mistrustful authority, and particularly of religious authority, and people who would rather pursue material comforts and allow themselves to be governed by their own desires and feelings. And we can wonder, can God really work in this kind of situation? But in fact, as we look around at society, what we're looking at is very much what the Puritans looked at as they looked out. As we've already seen, the start of the Puritan movement broadly coincided with the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And her reign followed a number of years of bloody conflict between those that wanted to be reunited with Rome and those that wanted to be separated. Queen Elizabeth wanted peace and stability. And these aren't bad things. But so she essentially tried to sort of muddle through in the middle. So she confirmed herself as head of the Church of England, so um, confirmed the split of Rome from the, from the English church. But in other ways, she fudged things. She, she kept some of the trappings of Catholicism, if not the theology, in the church. And she tried to keep the church weak. And I think you can understand something of why. The radicals on either side of the debate um, had denounced their opponents as heretics. When they had the power, they had tortured and they would burned them. Elizabeth didn't want this kind of extremism to flourish, so she encouraged a watered-down kind of Christianity. Do you recognize echoes of that today? Religion is the cause of all the evil in the world. It's the source of all the divisions. Have you heard that? Fundamentalism in religion is bad. Christian evangelicals, that is Christians who actually believe that what the Bible says is true, they are the most dangerous sort of Christians. You know, people are okay with a watered-down kind of Christian, or spirituality, not Christianity perhaps. That's quite acceptable. It's okay to believe in a God. It's okay to pray. But don't dare say that your view is right, or become too animated about it, or to think that your view should inform public policy. Because that is judged as extreme and unacceptable. And you can see where this is coming from, can't you? As we look across and we see the horror of Islamic extremism, as we see the Buddhists at the moment hounding the Muslims in Myanmar, as we look close to home back at the troubles in Northern Ireland not so long ago, all done in the name of religion, we can understand why in the desire for peace many people are hostile to a bold and assertive religion why they're deeply distrustful of people that claim they know the truth. And in the face of this, it's easy to adopt a, a defensive attitude. Circle the wagons, bunker down. And I'm sure the Puritans in England faced um, the same kind of temptations. The majority of people in England had had enough of violence and bloodshed in the name of religion. They were happy with Elizabeth's watered-down version. They were happy with a Christianity that didn't make any strong claims or demand any great devotion. They were not happy with the Puritans. The called and their call for a radical faith in God. A faith that demanded change and in values and lifestyle. The Puritan reformers were regarded as unwelcome fanatics. And they were in a small and a disliked minority. But they understood that real and lasting peace and justice and freedom and prosperity would only come as the church was truly revived. And through his church, revival came to the wider community. They believed that revivals had a central place in God's plan to extend the bounds of his kingdom. And they believed that one day there would be a mighty revival across the whole church with profound consequences. They had a great vision of what God could do. And they weren't going to be intimidated into staying silent. They saw revival as a, as a decisive work of God 
by his Holy Spirit restoring genuine Christian living. When revival came, it would be um, recognized because the spiritually dead would be brought to a living faith in Christ. The name of Jesus would be lifted up and honored. Love of the things of this world and of material possessions and sin would be decreased and people would be led into truth and the love of God and of man would be increased. And it was this that the Puritans were seeking. It was a central theme in their sermons, in their literature, and their teaching. And don't we want the same? To see a church great and glorious. To see a church profoundly impact our society. And here again we can learn from the Puritans. They were a small and embattled minority. And we can think of ourselves as the same. But the Puritans were nothing if not a people of great faith in God. And so they acted. And the first thing they did was to pray. They believed that revival was a sovereign work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit. But as John Edwards wrote, it is God's will that through his wonderful grace, the prayers of his saints should be one of the great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. So it's God's will that through his wonderful grace, the prayers of his saints, should be one great and principal means of carrying on the designs of God's Christ's kingdom in the world. So Puritans prayed, and we can emulate their example in that. Given that they saw revival as a work of the Holy Spirit, it's perhaps not entirely surprising they prayed. But although they saw prayer as essential, they didn't stop there. And this is perhaps a bit more surprising. And to explain why it's surprising, I need to sidestep and just tell you a little bit of Puritan theology. See, the Puritans were the the English face of the Reformation. Their theology was the theology of the Reformers. And at its heart, theology was about putting God at the very centre. They saw God as the world's creator and king, the sovereign lord of history, who by his love, his wisdom, might and power, was enacting his purpose in the world. They saw that everything that happened in the world was no more and no less than the outworking of God's preordained plan. And one facet of that overarching understanding was to see that God was sovereign in salvation. Their conviction was that the conversion of a sinner is a sovereign, gracious work of divine power. God calls sinners with an irresistible call. It is the Holy Spirit who makes the dead sinner able and willing to respond to the gospel. So it's a work of divine power. And it's a work of divine freedom. God can choose whom he will and when he will. See, the Bible teaches that we were all lost, spiritually dead and without hope. But then in his mercy, he reached out to us. Jesus came, and on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. God made a way for us to be reconciled to himself. He did it all. And those he chose, he called with a call that couldn't be resisted. He made us alive and declared that we are pure and whole and radiant and beautiful in his sight. This is amazing grace, that God has done it all. And we are the beneficiaries of his love, his goodness, and his mercy. And for the Puritans, God's grace was something they really got excited about. A doctrine to be treasured. And it is. But it's not without its difficulties too. In particular, the fact that it's entirely God's work. And that causes some people problems. But it's straight from the Bible. Sybil read us a passage last week, and it's well worth rereading. This is um, 
Excuse me. This is from the first chapter of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the day until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Even before the foundation of the world, before God created, he chose us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. That's a stunning truth. You and I were chosen by the Almighty God, and not because there was no one else to choose. This was in accordance with his pleasure and will. And because he wanted you, he got you. Because he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He is sovereign. And that was the settled conviction of both the reformers and the Puritans. A central plank of their theological understanding. But some people have argued, as I say, against this doctrine. Some complaining that it leaves no space for man to have a choice in the matter. Others say that, well, if we really believe that that was true, then that God is utterly sovereign, then his purpose will come his his purposes will come to pass anyway and we don't need to do anything now the puritans were no fools and some of the best and brightest students of their time became puritan leaders they were surely aware of these alleged difficulties but they also saw god's command to go into the harvest field they also saw god's command to make disciples to bring the kingdom of god in and they didn't see any conflict between recognizing god's total sovereignty on the one hand and their responsibility on the other their responsibility to use what resources god had given them in terms of uh, money time talent and so on to do whatever was in their power to do in order to see god's kingdom come to see revival and restoration and so they worked And maybe this is part of where the negative image of Puritans comes from, because they saw the work they had to do as a solemn responsibility. They took it very seriously. They knew that what they were doing had real significance. God wasn't asking them to do something cosmetic or peripheral while he did the real work. He was giving them real responsibility. So as an example, Richard Greenham was a pastor near Cambridge in the late 1500s. We're told that on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Fridays, he would get up at four o'clock in the morning to preach to his flock before they went to the fields. On Sundays, he would preach twice and then teach the children. 
In the mornings he would study, and in the afternoons he would visit the sick and speak to his other parishioners in the fields. He was recognized as a counselor of great skill, and people came from a long way away to come and be counseled by him. And many of those were helped. But within his own parish, despite 20 years of hard work, he saw virtually no fruit. And as you read the accounts of other Puritan leaders, you get the same picture. These were disciplined and hard-working people. They faced a lot of opposition. Some of them end up in prison. Others, as we've seen, saw little fruit, but they persevered. And I think that if a Puritan leader came here today, he would find much that he would be able to commend. Because a great number of you are involved in a great number of works that seek to further God's kingdom. And your diligence and hard-working. And you sacrifice time and effort. And I know there are times when some of you feel you see little fruit from your labours, but you keep going. And I want to encourage you to persevere. You are in great company. You'll be familiar with the first few verses of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In time, God will bring the harvest. And that was the experience of the Puritans. By the mid-1600s, harvest started to come. Richard Baxter was a pastor in Kidderminster. That's a town a bit to the southwest of Birmingham. And he understood that although um, um, it is God who saves, he nevertheless uses human means. So he preached passionately. He systematically visited everyone in his parish, teaching the truth about the gospel When he arrived in the parish, there were virtually no Christians there. After 20 years of disciplined hard work, there were over 2,000 Christians. That was virtually every adult in in the whole town. And all of these were discipled. They knew the catechism. They knew how to pray. They were strong. And despite a lot of opposition, they didn't fall away. And one of the lessons we can learn from this, and this isn't anything new, but simply that sometimes evangelism is a long term process. The Puritans saw evangelism a deep, long-term, community and friendship-based exercise. And we too have to be prepared to be in it for the long haul. I think of my wife, Stephanie. She's cultivated friends over many, many years. And she's seen very little fruit. And I know she isn't an isolated example. But again, the encouragement we can draw from the Puritans is to keep going, to keep planting the seeds. And that's the job that God has given us to do. He will bring the harvest in his time. And the revival in Kidderminster, though perhaps it's one of the more dramatic examples, it wasn't an isolated example. The Puritans saw their desire for the kingdom of God to come fulfilled. At least in part, they made a a true and a lasting impact on our society. And arguably, they prepared the ground for the revivals under Wesley and Whitfield a century or so later. So I need to come to a close. But I hope this little glimpse into the life and the teaching of the Puritans has helped to dispel something of the caricature that we started with. The Puritans were a people with a great love of God and his word, a people with great vision and a people of great discipline that were willing to work hard and endure great hardship in order to see God's kingdom come on earth. I think that the the hard work and discipline and the seriousness with which they understood the mission um, perhaps has given rise to some of the negative stereotyping. So let me finish just by reminding you of what some have called the defining doctrine of the Puritans, and that's the doctrine of grace. 
that God in his mercy graciously brought us back into communion with himself. And that's what drove them. That's what motivated them. They understood God's grace, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, we sometimes say. The Puritans had a clear understanding of what God had done and what he was going to do. And so they responded in passionate worship and obedience. And that's a great example for us to follow as well.